1: Bovokey, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I sit down with my guests to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Ryan Heights has worked at Michael and Young Fly Shop for over 20 years. For me, Ryan was the quote-unquote shop guy that I looked up to when I first started fly fishing. He was, and is, an incredibly knowledgeable angler who rarely boasts about his accomplishments and offers an open ear to those looking to share their enthusiasm and stories on the water. In this episode of Anchored, I sit down with Ryan to ask him what it's really like being the man behind BC's most successful fly shop, and if he's found himself changed throughout the evolution of fly fishing gear, the internet, angler mentality, techniques, and more. This episode of Anchored is brought to you by South Dakota and its incredible pheasant hunting. South Dakota is expanding pheasant hunting's horizons and giving sportswomen a greater voice in the field. The connection to nature, the adrenaline of the hunt, the satisfaction of eating the game you bag Hunting is our shared legacy and everyone is welcome to enjoy it. Go to www.huntthegreatestsd.com to hear stories from women who hunt and learn what makes South Dakota the world's pheasant capital. Again, that's www.huntthegreatestsd.com.
2: I was born in Mission, British Columbia and grew up here.
1: A B.C. boy, through and through.
2: B.C. boy, still living in Mission, B.C.
1: Can you, for people who are listening, maybe give us a little bit of your basic bio? Who are you? What do you do?
2: I'm Ryan Heights. I manage Michael and Young Fly Shop, which is in Surrey, British Columbia, and we have a shop in Vancouver as well. Been fly fishing most of my life. Fishing for when I wasn't fly fishing, and I started at the age of four, and have grown up outside.
1: I think you're one of the most understated. I won't say underrated because everybody who knows you knows just how dangerous you are, but you're definitely one of the more understated anglers in BC anyway. So you've been around forever. I feel like you're just a staple of Michael and Young's But for the most part, you stay out of the limelight, you mind your own business, you do a great job at Michael and Young. Uh, I am going to bug you a little bit more about that. I kind of want to pick your brain about why you've chosen to go that route, if that's okay. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Before we go there, let's just start off with a little bit more about who you are to provide some context. So um, four is pretty early. Who got you started that early?
2: Oh, my dad was into the outdoors. He wasn't really fishing per se, but he liked to fish and hunt and as a kid, he was into archery. Uh, grew up. He grew up kind of around the world. Ended up in Ontario when he was 13. But before that, he was like spent some time in Argentina, spent some time in England, spent some time in Switzerland. Um, through his mom's choice in men, they had to run away from a few places and ended up in Canada. And uh, he just spent a lot of outdoors there, and so we would do hikes and things, and we took a little spinning rod to Suicide Creek just outside of mission on a hike, and I just loved it, and then I just wanted to fish every weekend. so he uh, helped enable that. I fished growing up, I did odd jobs, even at like nine years old. I used to dig worms around the neighborhood and put them on buckets on my handlebars and ride up to the trout farm, and they let me fish there for free whenever I wanted, so I'd ride my bike up there on the weekends and just hang out in their ponds and uh, I got on a TV show called TGIF when I was a kid and I was called the missions fishing magician. Uh, I was just basically a 10 minute excerpt on fishing with corn and worms and bobbers and stuff. It was pretty fun. And there was a bunch of kids there that I was teaching as well. Then kind of as a teenager, I kept fishing, went through high school, kept me out of trouble for the most part. Cause I just wanted to keep fishing and then started doing, you know, Getting the workforce, trying to figure out what I would do with my life. Had a dream of being a marine biologist. And about four or five months before I graduated, that just kind of, for some reason, ended. I don't know if it was finance or what, but didn't really have much as far as income and stuff from the family background. Had family and love support, but not money support. So that kind of nipped that in the bud. And I just decided to wander and figure out who I was for a while. And four years of just odd jobs working at marine stores and Uh, Canadian Feather Merchants, which is a fly fishing wholesaler, and managed the fly shop in the U.S. for a bit, called the Guides Fly Shop. And then uh, decided I was going to go back to school and become a math teacher, because I've always loved math.
1: A math teacher? Is that what it was? What is your degree in?
2: I have a Bachelor of Science in Biology and Mathematics, but it's because math was too hard when I got to the upper level. So I had to take something to get my GPA back up in biology. I always loved it, so I was really passionate about it. And uh, it—it actually, I found it. Sounds corny, but easy in university because it's all memorizing. It wasn't right; you just kind of memorized it and wrote papers and did your thing. And it was pretty easy to get good grades. Then I decided to do my PDP so I could become a teacher and got a Bachelor of Education while doing that just by taking some extra courses and doing some online stuff. But I was working at Michael and Young at the time and I worked, did all their purchasing and stuff while I was going to university. And then uh, they kept increasing the bribe for me to stay there as a manager.
1: Now it makes sense because I would have met you when I would have been what, 20?
2: Probably.
1: Yeah. You like were, a long,
2: quite a while ago. Just like near the end of your casino career.
1: Mhm. And I remember meeting you and and hearing through the grapevine that you were this extremely educated man and <laughs> and I just remember hearing I mean that was in the day when when I when I would hear that someone had a degree I was like, "Oh my goodness, like they may as well have been a doctor to me if they had their degree." Uh and so but I never but I never really knew the story and I always wondered why you chose to stay at Emory. I was thankful that you were there, but I always wondered why. So if, is that is that why? It
2: was well, at the time they were desperate for somebody to kind of lead the ship because there was some term, some management that left in doing other things. And when I finished my PDP, the teaching situation was, I mean, you're starting at under 40,000 a year and climbing like yearly for 11 years sort of thing. And we're relatively, what we're three years into our marriage at that time, I think. So we were kind of living with not a lot of income and then a, basement suite and trying to decide if we wanted to move away or get a house. And I was like, well, I can start my teaching career as a substitute teacher and try and get a full-time job. And then Matt Sokol of all people, I don't know for our listeners, they probably have no clue who he is, but he was a very small part owner in Michael and Young fly shop. And I was fishing with him quite a bit at the time. And he basically said, if I'm going to buy into this, you've got to stay. And he convinced the principal owner to give me my, uh, 12 year teacher salary to start. And I was like, well, that's a big jump. So let's, uh, it's not a bad start and let's figure it out and go from there.
1: All right. Well, let's dive a little bit into some of the fishing side of things, if that's okay. Yeah. I fished with you before. And one of the things that really stuck out to me, and looking back now, I don't know why this was so surprising. When I was fishing, I was always trying to cast too far. And I watched you were so methodical. You always made sure that you didn't cast across the seam, right? Kept your fly in the zone. And I'd like to kind of pick through some of that technique and that strategy, if you don't mind.
2: Yeah, it's, I mean, I think I've been, maybe it's because I grew up hiking rivers and walking rivers, but you kind of learn where fish live and certain types of like summer steelhead, they live in slightly different currents and stuff than others. And The biggest thing for me is I don't want my fly going too fast by them. I want them to see it and have it approach them and get them curious. And so the best way to do that is keep your fly slow. And if you think they're on your side of the river, then keep your fly there. That's the way I look at it. But I take every piece of water, and as I'm working through it, you just find the sweet spots where your fly slows down and your line slows down and everything kind of tightens up and goes straight. And then you just try and keep that. I often will fish just like 10 feet away from my rod tip. Because a lot of times that's where the fish are sitting. They like shorelines. They like structure. So they're usually on your side or the other side. They're not typically in the middle unless there's people pushing them there.
1: Mm -hmm. And it's too situational to pick through every different scenario. But what about the single-hand rod versus double-hand rod thing? Because you would have been fishing a single-hand rod long before the whole spay boom, right? Yeah, I
2: grew up my first... Well, I had a hammy, couple of Hammy fly rods, like a Berkeley Cherrywood and an old hardy fiberglass that I grew up with, slope tubing and fishing rivers. And then I bought, got a Berkeley Safari six weight that I have it still, but the cork is just like an epoxied mess because there's nothing left of it. And that caught me everything. I fished that for little trout to Chinook salmon. It was basically everything because it's all I had. And then I saved up all my pennies. When I was 15, I bought a 10 foot three weight, which turned into my trout rod and lake rod. And then uh, I was maybe 19. I bought a 10 foot seven weight and a spay. no I was early. it was early in that I was built 17 I bought a 10 foot seven weight and then I bought a spay rod at 19 and then I started buying the rod every year for the rest of my life pretty much. But the single hand I love single hand fishing still like fishing local summer run stuff I fish the single hand all the time.
1: Do you feel that we fish overfish because we're fishing the longer spay rods? Oh, wow. And I'm asking this just to, yeah. And before we dive into that, I just want to say, you know, moving down here and spending a lot of time in New Zealand and even in the snowy mountains, I've really realized just how sensitive fish are, uh, especially to sound, shadows. All of that fun stuff, and so I look at my days with a big, heavy Skagit line, and I just kind of shake my head at myself for how many fish I'm sure I would have spooked.
2: You might find this hard to believe, I still have not caught a steelhead on a Skagit line.
1: But do you even fish them, though? Or are you more well, of a I fish them for
2: chinook, but I haven't fished them for steelhead.
1: Mm-hmm. So, why would somebody make the decision to use a two-handed rod over a single-hand rod, especially if they're fishing in close, like like you are, or? are definitely staying on your side of the seam.
2: In small systems, I'm surprised how many people just gravitate towards two-handed rods all the time and don't fish the single hand. They kind of miss it. and They they talk about the casting, and it's rare that I actually overhead cast my single-hand rod when I'm on a summer run river. It's always roll casts and sort of your switch casts and spay casts and things you're doing just with your underhand haul instead of your bottom hand on the cork. Because the minute you start aerializing it, you start hitting rocks and trees and things behind you and breaking flies. Because you're not really, you just, same idea, it's cast, swing, cast, swing, cast, swing. And the, if I can keep that fixed head out that I'm fishing, that's just the distance you try and keep fishing, I think. That's why I don't like scattered lines, because I hate having that very fixed line that I have to cast with. It has to be, well, it's basically you're at your 35 feet with the tip and you can't cast more or less and you just shoot it from there.
1: Mhm, so remember when, if you even thought to mention, like on the Thompson, that you were fishing a nymph, that you would just be pummeled to death, <laughs> Not really, but, you yeah. know, it was all about swinging flies. I remember hearing once that you would fish a nymph or fish slightly different flies. And I always wanted to ask you about it but I was always too embarrassed to ask you about it. But oh, now wow. as someone, but as somebody who fishes a, yeah. sucking leeches and I mean, I'll fish anything, especially these days because I'm pretty time poor with a child and you have a couple of children yourself. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about that because I do wonder a lot if the weird stigma was um, like, if we've outgrown the stigma or is it still there?
2: I don't know. I mean, it comes down to that old adage. You choose your weapons. I have never had a ton of time to just devote, you know, a month or two to fishing. It's always been a weekend, a four day cram trip. At most, my biggest trips are like a 12 day trip on the Dean. I've only done it twice, a couple 12 day trips on the Barkley. Like everything is five days, four days, three days, two days. And in the beginning of it, you're like, okay, well, the first few hours, few hours, day, half a day, full day. You're like, I just need to catch a fish. It's been months. So there's, you approach it. I mean, I've, caught fish every way you can imagine except i've never really steelhead fished with gear i haven't float fished ever in my life i have for salmon when i was a teenager but i've never uh, my dad was always busy in the winter and we never got out that much for steelhead it was pretty rare and then uh, by the time i did i was sort of 17 and fishing a single hand fly rod for everything so it uh changed but i've um i fished behind a lot of people fish behind friends, fish behind. And so you just fish it differently and you try and like, even when I'm fishing the Thompson with my little spay flies and popsicles, I'm often throwing slightly upstream and mending and letting that fly kind of nymph almost for a bit before it starts to swing. And it's more, I pick up quite a few of the fish.
1: What is a situation where you would fish a nymph versus a swung fly?
2: Pretty rare, but a few times froggy water, back eddies. I've t- I have friends that gear fish a Thompson a ton and they say most of the fish actually come from backwards moving water and back eddies pretty hard to swing a fly through that. Mm-hmm. So then you just dead drift stuff through it and you try and figure a little, most of the time I'm fishing like a small lead beaded popsicle through that kind of stuff, but I've done it on stonefly nymphs. I was fishing behind people, put on like a size eight stonefly nymph on the Thompson and caught of the biggest bucks I've ever caught.
1: What are your thoughts on fishing eggs?
2: Uh, I've done it a lot, but I haven't, it's sort of that. It's too easy it's too good. Like it's, I imagine it's kind of like fishing a bead off under a float or a center pin. It's, you know, for some, I don't even know when it would have started, but I used to hike to the Bulkley river uh, was in there with a buddy in the fall one year and it was fishing was tough. We weren't getting much, but there was some the odd fish around and uh, I put a stone nymph on on a floating line and I got a fish in seconds. And then I ended up getting like seven fish and a dozen casts. And I'm like, what is going on here? So then a few years later, I was fishing. There was four of us in a boat. It was super low and clear. And I was like, we knew there was fish around. We couldn't get anything to eat. I'm like, well, I wonder if they'll take an egg. And same deal, three casts, three fish. And then I handed the rod to my buddy and he made two casts and got one. And we're like, oh my goodness, this is just insane. So it's been, for a little while it became, I called it the CSI stick. So you'd like find a run and you know it's money and you'd fish through and there'd be nothing going on. You couldn't get a grab. So I'd be like, all right, I have a little thirteen foot four inch five weight that's super, super soft, and I just put a little like Gorman's egg on it, and you make a couple calves and catch a fish, and you're like, Oh yeah, they're just not eating today, and you go on to the next run. But I have that was I did that for a few years, but you get so much negative publicity that I just don't do it anymore. I've caught lots of fish.
1: Yeah, the negative publicity is closet now yeah the negative publicity (laughs) is very interesting to me and it's one it's actually where where i'm going to segue the conversation is into the fly shop i remember the fly shop being this incredible spot where you'd go and hang out and we'd shoot the shit and if we were really lucky we'd get to pull out the box with all the materials that weren't on the shelf (laughs) i don't know if we're allowed to speak of such things but
2: Uh, i have three of those boxes now but (laughs) Getting harder to find that stuff.
1: Yeah, yeah, it is. How much has how much has the fly shop changed for you anyway in the last twenty years?
2: Hmm. That's a pretty good question. It's something I haven't really thought that much about. It just kind of keeps it's evolving all the time. the The last year with this whole COVID pandemic has been this whole new world. Like, its sales are up probably fifty plus percent every month. Is another record month don't know where these people are coming from and buying things or the money's coming from. I guess it's just because people aren't traveling and they need to go outside and do things. Um, less hours, less staff, just trying to know people in the stores, but only a few at a time, but the sales, there's not really any pattern you can follow. It just sort of slowly meanders, almost like a river and kind of one year you're still water crazy and man, are insane. And then you turn into this, we were like this, Spay fly shop where everybody that needed anything about two handed rods came to us, and then it kind of stopped for a little while. We started doing all our spay days every year, but then it was I don't know, you kind of meet these mini saturation points, but then you're kind of you have a slow month, and then all of a sudden you get a couple customers that come in and drop. We had two dudes come into the Vancouver store after you know the day was only 500 bucks, and they dropped $7,500 on two outfits in the last 20 minutes of the day, and there you go, your day's beautiful. <laughs> So it's, I don't really, the shop itself, I mean, my job just gets busier and busier. We've been uh, trying to procure inventory and make sure the staff are happy. It's tough to find good staff too. I've got really good staff as my core, but there's the outliers and the part-timers. They're never there for long and not long enough to train them into being able to just give them the keys and rely on them, if you know what I mean. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: Is turnover, because I think that's a common issue with a lot of shops, is just a high turnover rate. Is it just that people don't see it as a quote-unquote career?
2: Possibly. And it's not an easy, I feel pretty blessed that I can make a career out of it. It's pretty rare for a non-owner to make an okay salary that you can actually support a family on, I think. And I'm pretty lucky that I've kind of built that niche and found the, the boss that'll pay me to do it. Mm-hmm.
1: You know, even now you're still understated. Like you just, you just do not go pounding your chest. I wish that people knew how fishy that you were. I can't do that here, obviously. <laughs> and I can't force you to tell everyone how great you are. But I do always um, wonder, and I wondered this with Adrian too, and I mentioned it when I podcasted her. Why did you choose not to go into more of the personality route, like so many of us, excuse <clears throat> like myself and others have done with our ego or vanity or ambition. Why did you choose not to highlight yourself?
2: Um, it sounds bizarre. Like I love fly, the fly shop and I love the relationships and the customers and the people. But when I'm outside, I am not social. I'm far from it. I don't want any... Interaction with humans, really, except maybe a few best friends. I don't want to talk. I don't want to have to think about conversation. I want to just listen to my surroundings, like the people I see out there with earbuds in the ears, listening to music. I'm like, what is wrong with you? I don't get this. Like, you're in the most beautiful place in the world, and you're listening to music. You're wrecking it, man. <laughs> so I don't. I'm just not. uh I'm not really confrontational either. I don't really like. I don't. I, I'm not aggressive. I guess. I find I have a bad temper I'm going to be honest but I don't like having that temper like if it snaps then I feel awful for days so it's sort of I don't like pushing having my buttons pushed by so I just make sure the people I know I love and trust and that's who I hang out with.
1: do you think that the fly fishing industry as a whole is confrontational
2: mm, no but there's definitely individuals in it that are but for the most part like I have we have thousands of uh, like customers that are just—they're amazing people. Some of them are good friends. Some of them are supportive. You make so many acquaintances. Anytime I have jobs to do around the place, I got a plumber that helps. I got an electrician that helps. I've got like they're all customers, and they're all yeah—they're just great people. But I just like—I uh, don't know—I like having a, a small circle in my life. I'm not a big circle person. If that makes sense. Yep.
1: Yep. It does. What's the latest conservation issue over there?
2: Oh, it's the Thompson is not looking good. It's a very sad story. Um, and I, I just get the, that I'm getting the same information that just about everybody else's is listening and paying attention gets. So I don't have any real inside scoop on anything. Um, there's that big, where you, did you listen to that? It was a couple hours long where Bison got on and a zoom meeting and just talked about their strategy and their plan and the history and the future and what he feels and thinks. And, so it was very enlightening and just they were talking about their, their modeling and how the, what avenues they figured they could take that would have the best impact the fastest, if that makes sense. And the most interesting thing that I learned from it was that their fry numbers are more than sustainable. They're really good, even though the adult numbers and spawning numbers are not great. But it's just the survival from fry to adult and the, they don't really know quite the percentage of fry that are staying in the system and not leaving. But their their biggest thought is locally is harbor seals. The population has exploded in the last twelve to fifteen years to from like five to six thousand to twenty three thousand or something. And they feel that the steelhead when they leave the river are individuals and in near shorelines and bigger than most salmon and they just get picked off really easily. That's sort of the general there's so many factors. There, there's got to be a reason why all of our steelhead rivers up and down North America's west coast. Something's wrong with the ocean. Like, who knows what it is? It's humans, but what part of it? Mm-hmm. There's some kind of mess up there.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. Do you remember when John McMillan had done that study about the the steelhead not necessarily having to go back to the ocean? Yes. So is that is that, that all? Twenty nine different. Y- yeah. Is that all part of this? Possible life history? Do you want to explain to people who are listening? I mean, I know we're not John McMillan here, but do you want to explain kind of what, what he touched on?
2: Uh, essentially that most salmon have very limited what they call life history. So they're born and they always leave and go to the river in their first year or their second year, depending on the species of salmon. They go to the ocean and they're there for somewhere between one and on Chinook up to six years or five years, I guess it is. Where steelhead can stay, they have evidence of one steelhead in particular spending nine years in fresh water before it went to the salt and spent a year there and then came back and spawned. So they, because of all the math that comes into play, they can live up to twenty-nine different life histories. So their kind of chances of survival of a species is really, really good because they have so much genetic variation and and not only that, is they can spawn with um with a resident trout and still have steelhead offspring,
1: yep, yep, that's right, and yeah, I think John talks about some of this in the podcast that we did. What are your thoughts on people fishing, even though there were like two hundred fish left in the system, and people were still fishing it. Do you know why that was still allowed?
2: Uh, I have no idea why it was allowed. I have no idea if they just had no clue how many fish were actually coming back because their their index for how many adults are in a system in any given year is well you got an albion test fishery and when they tell you have 10 steelhead in the net over a six week period that there's a thousand fish in the river and you can fish it it's pretty wishy-washy if you ask me although the index is year in and year out and it's close it's within like nine or ten percent typically but i guess they felt that because of the short term of the opening and the extra kind of regulations and stuff they had that it wouldn't have that much impact on adults but obviously there was some not some truth there and there's a reason nobody's fishing it anymore.
1: Are you allowed to fish it still?
2: You cannot fish the Thompson. Yeah, I mean, you haven't to fish the Thompson in over three years from October, October 1st on. Mm-hmm. So
1: you can still fish it for trout?
2: You can fish it in the summer for trout. Yeah.
1: How do you handle that sort of situation when you're managing a shop and people are coming in and, and telling you that three years ago they were going to fish the Thompson? Because this is what is not coming through in this episode, and I'm just going to have to say it straight up we respect you. I mean, a lot of us to, to me and to a lot of us, you were this like celebrity figure, you know? Um, that's why I kind of, <laughs> I think I kind of giggled when you were like, bashful? no, blush. but it's true. You know, and even when you were like, you know, pe- people might not know who Matt Sokol, Sokol was. And to me, he was like this, like, yeah. oh, Matt Sokol just came in. He was like a, you know, a bit of a celebrity too. He's six foot seven. Yeah. That's part yeah of you it. can't miss him. He's huge. But, but yeah. you know, we look up to you. And so I know that for me, Especially back then, if i'd and still now, if I'd walked in and you had said to me, "Hey, listen, you probably should not go fish that system, and here's why I would absolutely I can't I'd cancel a trip so how how yeah. do you how do you navigate that sort of authority without becoming you know one of those stodgy old crusty shop guys, but still trying to be an ambassador really for the for fly fishing?
2: It's pretty tough. You try and steer people into forming their own answers. But yeah, I mean, I had two different customers in today basically asking my permission to go still water fishing with the travel restrictions. They're trying to justify their reasoning and you just kind of be like, well, you know, the rules haven't really changed. They've been this way for a year. They're just saying now they're going to enforce them. Um, my kind of consensus is it's probably not a big deal if you live in a tiny community somewhere where there's been no COVID and you want to come to Surrey and potentially make yourself sick. But if you're living in Surrey and you're like the hotspot of this whole thing in B.C., why would you go infect all these other little communities?
1: Did you say that?
2: I did. And he was like, oh, well, well, uh, I I have friends there that I need to visit. And I'm like, well, if you're going to have to do what you're going to do, it's fine. I mean, I don't. If Honestly, I don't see how jumping into a boat in the middle of the lake is going to actually make somebody sick. But I understand the reasoning behind not allowing people to travel to different health regions. Cause you don't just jump in a lake. Typically you get gas and you get food and you stop places and you do things and you congregate with friends and you can't, it just adds up, but it's going back to the Thompson too. It's, it's tough. You can't, if people ask my opinion, I give it, but I don't volunteer very often. If that makes sense.
1: Have you found yourself change over the years? I mean, you don't not, not physically. You look great by the way. You, you actually look like you're getting younger, but
2: with <laughs> except for the gray
1: <laughs> that's all right we all we all have it tonight but, i've got it yeah. too but i mean how how, have, how is your temperament have you found that you're less tolerant these days or have you found the opposite Have you found that now as a father you're more tolerant
2: no well individuals i become less tolerant but there's my long-term individuals like one is my boss he's sometimes hard to stomach we love him to death but he's got interesting ideas on some things in life um but most of the time, I can just curb it and go home and relax and give my kids a hug, and I'm fine.
1: Now, I th- I swore that I would no longer speak about social media on the podcast because we've spoke about it ad nauseum. But you're the perfect person to ask. You know, I was chatting about this with friends the other day because I'm trying to get together a panel to to finally put the nail in the coffin on this influencer discussion. We're going to talk about is it really that? Big of a deal. Um, you know, I've got this other podcast called Into the Backing. We sit down with a a controversial topic and we pick it apart. We hear each other's viewpoints and it's generally pretty forward moving and thought provoking. Yeah. But I was speaking with friends and it was like, well, who are the big influencers? There's what, three big social media influencers, the the problem has to be one step down. It's got to be the, you know, the micro influencers or the people who are offering discount codes uh, or, and, or who are all ambassadors and cutting into fly shops. This is a huge, uh, yeah, this is a huge topic. And so I don't want to open the entire can all at once, but you've been there from before social media. You've been there. Well, through the heart of it all. and, And you're still there. So is it making a difference to the shop seeing all of these new people come in and they're immediately, you know, there's somebody. And so they, they want to have this huge profile and, and I won't even talk about discounts right now, but has it impacted you as a fly shop yet? And if so, how?
2: Um, Well, it sure has. It's social media for me is not, I I'm not good at it. I'm, I try and dabble in it a little bit, just so my presence is there, and people can bounce ideas off me if they need to, and whatever. But I'm, I find myself very opinionated on some things. When I see people giving really bad advice, I, and as a manager, I got to be careful how much I jump in there because if you offend too many people, you might start losing customers, and not only them, you could lose their their friends and stuff too. Just so it's, I try and just give good information, but not really biased information, if that makes sense. But as far as the social media and the shop, it, it is a mostly Instagram and Facebook are really good free platforms for generating ideas and getting people excited because everyone's on them, whether even, I mean, even though I don't post a lot, I look at it just about every day quickly and go through and check my notifications and see who's doing what and watch some odd Instagram story just so I can see what, well, a lot of times what the competition's doing. It gives me a little windows into their ideas and their platforms and it's funny watching customers too when you kind of build that link to them and you see their growth. So you've got like I have one gentleman that uh, got into it very quickly and hardcore and absolutely loved it, but would just pick everybody's brain as much as he could for information on social media and the platforms and he would gather places and ideas and secret locations, quote unquote secret. But, and then all of a sudden you see him start going, Oh, well, I don't want to share that spot. Oh, I don't want to share that spot. But I feel like I have to give back cause I got so much from it. But, but then I went there and there was like six vehicles there and it's destroyed. Uh, there's too many people now. And I'm like, well, that's kind of what social media does. Like you get the information to the masses and the masses are going to go use it. So you've got to pick and choose your, what you want to share. Because it's it's out there for everyone to see.
1: Do you remember when it used to just be the forums before social media? I mean, I remember yeah. being on the forums, and we wouldn't even write the Thompson. Remember, it was called the T, oh, yeah. and people would be like, "What's the T?" And it's like, "No, no, no, we don't even we don't even we don't speak about it." <laughs> right?
2: How many pictures of Steelhead were people sharing? Even with the social media craze, people would like not show Thompson pics. The minute it was closed, everyone would start putting up their Thompson pics. Can't go anymore. Check this out. Because you try and it's a place that seems so big, but when you get there and there's 15 vehicles roaming around, it doesn't seem very big anymore.
1: I remember there used to actually be a handful of systems that were secret, and I'd love to think that they still yeah. are. Are there still secret streams in on the West a Coast? Few left, but-
2: a few less, but there's some, yeah. And some of them lose their secrecy, but get it back a few years later because there a lot of those systems, pardon me, are very um, – they're very temperamental so you can have some of the best fishing in your life but it's not easy to predict it's never like it might be a few weeks a year and it's just guys will go spend a lot of money or spend a lot of time and not have a great trip and so it sort of loses its allure sometimes but for those of you that have been there or those of us that have gone and part of that it's not uh, it's finding that sweet moment amongst all the hard moments that make it so rewarding.
1: Coming up, Ryan and I dive into the confusion behind fly lines and sink tips. Thank you again to South Dakota for making this episode possible. Hunting brings us together. It's a human tradition. The connection to nature, the adrenaline of the hunt, the satisfaction of eating the game you beg. It's our shared legacy. And while pheasant hunting has always been a part of South Dakota's story, they're making the next chapter even greater. Welcoming all types of hunters and boosting sportswomen's voices – That's a legacy to stand the test of time. Go to huntthegreatestsd.com to hear from women who hunt and learn what makes South Dakota the world's pheasant capital. There you'll find public land maps, information about the seasons, incredible pheasant recipes, and more. Again, visit www.huntthegreatestsd.com. One of the things that I want to pick your brain about is fly lines. And I I find that I'm constantly half joking, half seriously digging at Fly shops and the industry for having all of these lines and making sink tips especially so damn confusing for people, and it's one of the number one questions that I get. Fly shops don't do it's it. It's the industry, right? So,
2: oh, it's mad. It's a mess. Let's
1: talk. Can we talk about that a little bit? It didn't always oh, used we to be this try. crazy, right? We might confuse
2: more people, but we can try, <laughs>
1: right? I mean, at what level? At what point do shops just say enough, or do you guys have to carry it because the skews exist and therefore? They've got to be on the shelf. We don't carry them all, but
2: we carry a lot. It's our My inventory is pretty incredible as far as the different tips and stuff out there. But they, I find the biggest frustration for me is when everyone believes that poly leaders, quote unquote, are actually leaders they can put on the end of floating lines. And I'm like, well, no, poly leader is just a sinking tip built on a monofilament core. It still has way too much mass to throw on the end of your normally weight forward Front tapered floating line, you're going to destroy your ability to cast it. And they're well, it's everyone thinks, well, it's got a leader in the name, it's got to be a leader. No, it's not. It's a sinking tip. It's just a cheaper sinking tip.
1: Would you argue that sink tips are essentially leaders? Like it's interesting when you're setting your anchor in a spay cast, you know, and they say that your your anchor point is where is the junction between your, your line and your leader. Would you argue that technically, by the book, the sink tip is a leader? No. You'd call, it, you not only, call well, it a
2: line? I think if you're skadget casting with a scadget line, then it is part of your anchor. But in all other good spay casts, it's not. It's in the air. It's not part of the water. How would
1: you define a line versus a leader then? I'm just trying to th- I'm thinking from, spay, from a space specific stance.
2: Oh, I think your leader has got to be that kind of... It can be furled. It can be mono. It can be different materials. But it's got to be light. But I don't know how you specifically define it but the minute you add that's funny there isn't somebody trying to add a definition already it's a good thought but like you get too many grains per foot it can't really you're wrecking your fly line so at some point you're just trying to add to the end of your fly line if you're adding too much mass
1: do you think that we fish too short of leaders it's one of the the biggest revelations i've had with atlantic salmon fishing is that for years and i I believe with steelhead you can get away with fishing a short leader but do you think that we tend to to fish.
2: T-shirt. Do you remember the gene and how long my leader was? On it my was long, ones? wasn't it? Seventeen. Yeah. Feet, probably. And
1: the, and this is what I'm talking about. And the fishier people. I mean, Henrik Mortensen blew my mind on this. And someone like yourself, I don't see you guys fishing these three foot long leaders, and that's really interesting to me. So maybe we could just dive into a little bit of that.
2: Well, I think the three foot leader with a fast sinking tip in our slower water, it just gives you more control over what your fly is doing when you're fishing different systems, or if you're fishing really downstream with fast, fast heads, then the the head is going to drag the fly under because you're fishing it under that complete. You're basically pulling it back against the current. So you need the faster sink and the long leader won't adjust the depth that much. But with floating lines, I use really long leaders because I figure there's the less shadow, the less mass, the less movement in the water, chances the fish are feeling more comfortable and they're going to be more curious because most of the time we're dealing with curious fish not necessarily feeding fish when we're talking about steelhead fishing Mm
1: -hmm. and you do that for long flies as well not just like soft hackles
2: oh five inch intruder 17 foot leaders like yeah Mm -hmm. how do you for all
1: how do you turn that over on a 17 foot leader
2: use the fly as your anchor Mm
1: -hmm. yeah how long's your line but you're casting a pretty you're a mid to long line guy right
2: yeah i kind of got into the game early enough that my first spay rod, I was using a double taper spay line because there was nothing really on the market. So you learned to manage fairly long lines. And then I was around when people were showing up with these twelve weight wind cutters cut in half. And I was like, What is wrong with you guys? This is like casting a gear rod. There's so short. Like fifty-five feet was considered short. And you're like, This is this is boring. Like, why are you fishing such a short thing? You got no control. You can't do any big single spays or snake rolls you just stuck to this little double spay thing and so I never really gravitated towards it but when you have a longer line and you're if you have your leader built correctly where you start really stiff like and you build it out and I usually have 10 feet of like 14 or 17 pound fluorocarbon on the end now I've everyone talks about you don't need fluorocarbon for steelhead and I'm yeah but I like the diameter and the, the kind of resistance like the so it's I use it for just about all my steelhead fishing now. Dry fly fishing, I don't mind fishing Maxima, like the thicker stuff. But. Right,
1: right. I gotcha. So, when did you just back to the fly line confusion? When did you see it start to go to hell in a hand basket? I felt like it was when the Mo Tips came around, but I, I'm not in the shop all the time. What are
2: you? I might get myself in trouble, but Mo, I'm like Tips are just mar- in my mind, just clever marketing.
1: So, how does a consumer? They not really.
2: Besides the odd pocket water application which aren't that many they're they're not making anybody's life easier
1: so I come into the fly shop and I'm totally trusting you and I say Ryan I'm so confused what do I need to go winter steelheading tomorrow I've got a 13 and a half foot 2 hand rod and uh scandy line Mm -hmm. what do you what is my number one tip that I need for people listening right now who just, they only want to buy one or two tips, where do you direct them?
2: My, that's the easiest way to answer this. For me, a Scandi line is a horrible sinking tip tool. Scandi lines that are meant to sink are built to sink because their front taper is too long and thin. So they don't have the mass in the front to turn over any sort of tip where there is quite a few on the market that have the versatile system where they pull the floating tip off and put a sinking tip on, and those work fine because the tape, tapers continue it. But if you just had a Scandi line, I'd try and get you the lightest, like a 50-grain, 10-foot tip that's not too much mass that your fly line can actually turn over without hinging and falling apart. Does that make mm-hmm. sense?
1: Yep, it does. I'm just yeah. trying to pick through all the different things that I wanted to ask you over the last yeah, Like Scandi lines
2: are, this is all... Based on my opinion and my fishing, but I like, I don't mind Scandi line fishing, but if you want one to sink, buy it to sink. Don't buy tips to go on the end of it because they're not built for that. They're built to load your rod quickly and move fast through the air. They're not built for the slow kind of hinge and driving. They're not made to pull a bunch of mass with them.
1: Yep. Sounds good. Is there anything that causes confusion that would be good to bring up
2: what, I, what i'm surprised is not talked about more and is what i find really confusing for half my staff although i have some of the biggest brains in spay fishing in my mind between tim and Catherine, that they get it is it's not about when you're casting a spay rod it's not about how much how many grains load that rod to make a cast that's everyone has this well my rod throws 570 grains i'm like no your rod throws 570 grains at 23 feet if you want to throw a 50 foot head, you're going to need 700 grains or 650 grains. If you want to throw an 80 foot head and they're like, well, what do you mean? Like, isn't it amount of the mass that loads the rod? I'm like, well, you're not throwing the entire mass in the air. You're not overhead casting it. It's not all dragging on your rod tip. The longer your line is, the more mass you need. And the vice. opposite is true too. With the birth of all these really, really short staget heads, if you had like a 540 grain, 23 foot or 22 foot head and then you try and go to one of these commando tips you're gonna have to drop it down to like 400 grains it's a big big drop in mass because you have way less line in the loading the rod and that's i imagine i'm surprised that i haven't done it or somebody with some sort of math brain i bet you there's a very easy graph to actually figure out what works on any particular rod like a 13 regular 13 and a half eight weight and the mass at each kind of length of the line
1: yeah does the real calculator do any of that for you or is it all just based on grain weight?
2: I don't think so. I'm, uh, I don't spend much time on the real calculator,
1: (laughs) but you should do something like that. uh,
2: Yeah. It's, I mean, when you fish a ton and you've thrown lots of rods and lots of lines, you kind of just learn that it's sort of this, you feel it out and most rods will throw a huge window of line weight the line I like on it might be a hundred grains less than the line. Somebody else likes on it. So then you try and decide kind of, is this guy a beginner intermediate advanced? Does he want to try and learn how to do some single space and double space? Or is he happy just getting out there and turning the fly over so he can swing a f- that cast. And then basically if he's trying to turn big mass, the more grains you have, the more mass you can move. So you can use shorter and heavier lines and, but I'm, uh, I'm also, when I fish sink tips, even for winter fish, the heaviest I ever fish is type 6. I never fish more than like T T7 or T8 at the most. I'm going to have some little bit heavier flies if I need to get down a tiny bit. but
1: Cool. I'm just thinking of what else I wanted to bug you about with the shop.
2: The biggest struggle I find is trying to support the companies that support me when the masses support the best marketing if that makes sense.
1: It does, yeah. So you've noticed a huge difference in marketing over the last few years?
2: For sure. But not only that, you're getting big companies that built their livelihood on tackle stores with the a number of tackle stores dwindling and the big box stores taking over. The companies are now going consumer direct and they're aggressively doing it to the point where instead of you know getting your support emails quarterly or whatever and telling you about what the plan is and what's going on. You get an email saying, just so you know, we're going to offer 20% off all our fly lines for the month of November. And you're welcome to join us, but there's not any discount extra to you. And you're like, Oh, well, that's great. Thank you very much. Like it's when you're at a fly shop and you got the retail space. If just cause I sell you a fly line for 150 bucks, I'm only making like maybe now, maybe $60. It's the best margins I can get. So it's in the minute you start discounting that there's not a lot of money left.
1: Right. Cause I remember when going direct was really, really poo pooed. I mean, I remember when Sims went direct, it was like this enormous deal that, that they could do that. Oh, And
2: they backpedaled on it, but they're doing it again now.
1: And are the rod companies also doing it now?
2: Some are, I don't know if I can blast them all out on this or not, but some are doing it very aggressively. And not only are they, because a lot of the big companies now are, they're affiliated. Like there's a company that owns Sage and Rio and Fishpond and has a destination travel company built into it in Reddington. And there's another company that owns Airflow and Abel and Ross, another company that owns Winston and Bauer. And so they're all gaining the entire package, if you will. And so now when you go, if you want to go to Sage website, just say, hey, what's a Sage X rod? And you look and they're like, oh, here's a 590X, it's for sale, here's the amount, and you should put this Rio Elite Gold on it, and here's your package price, buy it now.
1: So what does that mean for the fly shop moving forward?
2: Well, it's most of the time you just keep pulling in the inventory. It makes it harder and harder if you don't have inventory, you're not going to sell it. Because people come in, they touch it, they feel it, they want it, they leave with it. But if you don't have it and they got to go look for it, they'll. it's so easy to get it to your door the next day or the next few days. But a lot of you'll find... I don't even know what kind of numbers, but a huge population base of my customers, they might not be just my customer, but they shop at tackle stores within the Fraser Valley. So they're they're loyal to that buying platform because they know they can go there and get their fly line swapped out and get new backing on and talk about life and find the newest dubbing and unload sometimes. Sometimes you're a psychologist, but... Then the little companies, the guys that bend over backwards for you and kind of support you through all of it, they don't have the money to actually aggressively advertise. And so guys come in and they always have something in mind. And the biggest thing I find as a salesperson, if someone comes in and they want something, don't change their minds or you won't make the sale. You just confuse them and they don't want it anymore. So if they come in and they want their Sage 5 weight, then show them Sage 5 weights or they want their... 10 foot four weight and whatever you just sell them what they want because if you try and show them something they don't want then they'll start thinking about things and they'll move away and they'll do something else and who knows what sad reality the end of the day is i get paid when they pay me
1: what how would you define aggressive marketing
2: aggressive marketing well like i said when you can go on to their website just as a research tool but when you click on a particular model it automatically pops up as to the buy it now buttons and not only that it tells you what fly line you got to buy with it and tries to bundle it and package it all at the same time so that would be direct website marketing but then they uh they're starting to use the social media platforms and they're advertising their sales and their events and uh where some websites although they like some dealers will sell to a consumer directly they will try to steer you towards a dealer first so in case of Sims, they're, where do you live? Well, here's your local dealers. But if you don't have anybody nearby, you can buy from us kind of thing. Um, and then they don't ship over the border very easily. Like it's a bit of a, you've got to... Buy. So they try and push people toward their dealers. But I get too frustrated when I go through all these websites and try and find out what they're doing. That I'm just like, you know what? As long as the guys are coming in looking for things, I'll stop them.
1: Well, back in the day, in the day, how many of your sales or how much of your profit was because of guides. I remember going into Fred's in Chilliwack and, and it was full of guides.
2: So we've never had a huge guide. Base. No.
1: Okay. So you're not losing. We have a
2: few, a few strong guys. We actually have, well, I'm going to name drop Yosa Cromers. He's been a godsend for our Vancouver location because he and he and my staff get along really well and they work well together. And his, he kind of gets his guys outfitted and, We get a lot of customers coming on their visits fishing to come into our shop and buy gear and do things. And it's been a a pretty good relationship in that regard. But we don't have, as a fly shop in our location, like we are a bizarre location for a fly shop. There's no water anywhere near us. We're just sort of in the middle of the population center of the Fraser Valley. So we're 20 minutes from everywhere, if you know what I mean. Um, So we've never had an in-house guide. We've Over the years, there's been people that guided, that worked for me. But most of the time, we're... We steer people into the direction of a few guys out there, whether they're going the squamish way or they're going like Curtis Myers, BC Flashback Adventures way. But we don't have uh, we don't make a lot of money on the guiding platform. That's not our. It's more just getting tackled at the masses. Okay, so you're not losing. And fly tying, fly tying in the last mm-hmm. year. Wow,
1: right? I guess so. And
2: that's a great job trying to keep it on the shelf.
1: Yeah, yeah. So you're not losing a lot of money then with guides getting all of the all their discounts nowadays.
2: Um, no, there, there's a lot of, well, the, for this year's, the pro programs are getting shut off quite a bit because they don't have the inventory to support them. Ah, right. So they're, they're saying, no, we're not doing it. No, we can't do it. But most of those programs are really saturated. Like you could, you could have been a guy six years ago and still be on the program. Mm-hmm. And in the small font, you're supposed to make 50% of your income as a professional fisherman to qualify. But in reality, as long as they have a benefit from you, in a lot of cases, it's just a social media platform where they can get free marketing and free advertising. They don't mind supporting you in that kind of thing. But I know Sims is starting and Patagonia, too, is starting to um, basically create a database for their pros. So if you're a size large, you can buy other things. Yeah, good. Yeah, so that's a good thing. But the amount of people that come in to try things on and then order it on the pro program, that part drives me nuts. I think that's kind of slimy. But.
1: Do you say anything?
2: No, I just roll my eyes. Or, oh, my son's on the pro program. I just wanted to check this rod out and see if I can get it through him. I just, i what I usually say is, you know, if they get caught, they're not on the pro program anymore. Well, what do you mean? They're only allowed to buy it for themselves if they get caught.
1: And that shuts that down?
2: So part of that maybe. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I, I never do.
1: Does talking about fishing start to drive you crazy now that you work at a... Sh- or considering you work at a shop?
2: No, I like seeing everybody's passion for it. It's I know some guys burn out on it quickly. I mean, I like talking about it. I like... I'm not... I don't go off on stories very often. Like some of, some people I work with are just all about... You hear the same story probably six 700 times because it's their favorite story, if you know what I mean. But um, I like talking about fishing. I like teaching fishing. I like trying to share my passion for it. And hopefully that comes across to the people that deal with me.
1: Can you sit through a film festival of fishing? No, no. <laughs> no, I didn't think so. Neither can I. And I try so hard and no. I can appreciate the stories and I can appreciate the camera. I,
2: I have not had a tea of fishing of any kind of on any of my screens in probably seven or eight years at home. Is it because you're
1: saturated by it or have you, has it never been your thing? No,
2: it's just, it's never been fishing for me is kind of me in nature. It's not somebody else in nature. I don't need to see their, their music and their story and they kind of turning it all into this. I mean, the stories I get, the adventure I get, and it, it drives passion for others and excitement for others, but does it sound selfish? But I've, been to that excitement level lots in my fishing career so it's I don't really need to get it from their adventures I love getting it on my own adventures but I tried buying a GoPro once my first trip to Christmas Island after about uh what would it be that whole trip and another whole trip and it never came out of the bag or got turned on I just (laughs) I'm never gonna do this Mm -hmm. not my thing yeah
1: yeah so what's next for you Ryan besides being you know, family guy and manager extraordinaire. Do you have any plans to take over the world or write a book or? No,
2: I would honestly, if if it ever came down to it, I would love to buy the fly shop, but I don't know if, if it would, uh, it's funny. Dave is the owner and he talks about wanting to sell it, but he also, I mean, he's kind of built it and it's his, He can, it gives him a very nice lifestyle, one that he likes, one that he can, work some of his other passions around with his mining and stock adventures and everything else. And so I get why he wouldn't want to sell it.
1: Yeah. He's a madman.
2: And then uh, <laughs> I find it hard thinking about, I could just try and do it on my own, but then I have so much of myself built into Michael and young already that it's, uh, it's kind of become a part of me. If you know what I mean, I've been there 22 years now, I think.
1: When I think of Michael and young, I think of you. I think of, I mean, I still think of the old school days. I think of like you and Curtis even, and I think of Adrian and now Kat and Tim, you know, but, but yeah, no, I definitely can see that. Yeah. Do you have any advice for someone who would like to start a fly shop?
2: Uh, That's a tough question. I don't know.
1: Would you recommend it?
2: Well, it depends on your passion. Like I like being in charge of the business. I, don't think I could ever go back to being an employee in the business. If that means things like I've kind of run the show, I've been very lucky that although I'm not an owner, I've been given full autonomy to buy and do and hire and fire whoever I want. Um, Yeah, it's definitely not an easy, it's a really hard time to get into a fly shop as a new startup because you are dealing with direct to consumer and you're dealing with every fly shop out there tries to protect their, their inventory and what they have. And it's in Canada, it's a little easier that the relationships I find in my small kind of, I guess, experience with some of the U S shops, they seem very brand affiliated. So they have the support of one or two brands. Um, And it seems like they almost have a slight bit of ownership over that territory for that brand. Where in BC, it's kind of spread out. If you want to invest in it, you can get it. So there's not that much protection, but it's not easy to, I mean, to have enough inventory to support the consumer base that you're going to get is a big investment.
1: Mm -hmm. And then how does it work? I always hear people complain about orders because you have to put in, what is this complaint I always hear about? Annual orders and need to have orders placed by a certain time. And then,
2: well, there's, if you want to procure inventory for the upcoming season, you have to book it in advance.
1: Way in advance. So, and
2: you have to get pricing levels, you have to book different dollar amounts. So, depending on the company, like your big companies like Thims and Farbank, you're at like 65,000 US wholesale just to get to the good buying level. So, it's a very big commitment.
1: And then, is it true that you're not allowed to discount it past a certain percent?
2: Yeah, they're well there yes. It's I mean, there's different rules. Like in Canada, there's not once you own it, there's nobody that can really tell you what to sell it for. But the companies can ask you, hey, like this is our minimum advertised price. If you sell below it, we'll stop selling to you.
1: Do they ever undercut you guys? Like have they ever told you no, you can't discount it past this? But then they bit. go ahead and do it?
2: Not past that amount, but they'll like I was giving you that. At, um, and now not analogy, but that example of how the companies were doing Black Friday sales on a bunch of lines and stuff. they are just new inventory, full price stuff, and they're just offering it at a fairly substantial discount. And they're saying, we're going to have a bunch of marketing for this. You're welcome to join. So then you look kind of like a doughhead when people come in and say, well, aren't those lines for 20% off? They're on the site. And I'm like, well, I can't really compete with the company that makes them. So
1: where where do shops make the most money? Is it fly tying material? Is it fly lines? I don't. I wouldn't imagine fly well, lines.
2: It's hard. Fly lines probably. To be honest, they have the best margins if you book a lot of inventory. So if I commit to one well, fly line, the booking levels aren't that high. Airflow is actually really low. Scientific angler is phenomenal, but if I commit to like I have, what do I have? Maybe a twelve thousand dollar order. I'm picking up in the next couple days. So I do that six times a year and I get good margins. So they're and they I'd hate to say the numbers of how many fly lines I sell. No,
1: no, here. that's okay. You don't have to disclose any
2: information. No, I'm just trying to think numbers. Like it's nuts. Like in this time of year for Stillwater lines, I probably sell 160 a month or something, maybe more. Like we sell a ton of fly lines. And flies have really good margins, and they're easy to reorder. Fly tank materials. You get great margins, but they're a lot of work to keep on the shelf. Mm-hmm. And, the, and this year, they're really hard to find things like certain beads you can't get. The supply chain is not very smooth right now.
1: Well, Ryan, thank you very much for offering a glimpse into the life of a fly shop. I hope that you <laughs> end up owning M&Y. Honest to goodness, I can't think of anyone else. It'd be would fun. Do a better job. Yeah. Is there anything that I have missed that you would like to add or to ask me?
2: No, I don't think so. But thank you for doing this. It was sort of, uh, kind of. I was invited through yourself and Kirk, and I was just like, well, I wonder what this is going to look like. I have no clue. And I prodded you a little bit, saying, "Hey, do you what are we? Are we talking about anything particular?" And it's like you purposely were avoiding the, like, no, I just uh, we're going to wing it. No. Yeah.
1: Well, I never know what I'm going to talk about because I never know what people are going to share with me. Yeah. And um, you're an especially tough one because I know that you're quite private. Um, For the most part, you know, it's not like you're out there flashing your life all over the place, and so it's it's yeah, it's it's a little bit tough with you because I feel like you just don't. I feel like you're just kind of private, Um, and and like I said from the beginning, you're. I feel and will stand by that you are understated. I feel like you're very humble, and I feel like you oftentimes don't speak unless asked. You're not very, like I mentioned, likely to start pounding your chest and trying to show people how great you are, which is admirable. Well, thank you. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening.